The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2011 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. The seeds of political and military turmoil have germinated throughout the Middle East and point to a very turbulent and troubled time ahead. And here at home, it is a tale of economic uncertainty and military quagmire around the world. One does not need to have a crystal ball to know that we are heading for troublesome times. In fact, we're not heading for troublesome times. We are in troublesome times. The Bible describes the end of the age as a time of great trouble and distress. If you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Zephaniah, the first chapter, I want to point out verses 14 and 15. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. The day of the Lord is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The prophet spoke of this coming prophetic era as the day of the Lord. This prophetic era of cataclysmic events will be a time of terrible tribulation during which mankind will suffer as never before in all of human history. There will be mega earthquakes, there will be worldwide famine, there will be terrifying wars, and there will be death on a massive scale. In fact, even early on in the tribulation period, in Revelation chapter 6, we read about a fourth of the world's population being killed during that time. And during this period of time, particularly during the latter part of the tribulation, the Jewish people are going to be singled out. And their persecution will be so intense that this era is prophetically called the time of Jacob's trouble by the prophet Jeremiah. He calls it that in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7, but then as he ends that verse, Jeremiah tells us, gives us a wonderful promise, he says, but they, the Jews, shall be saved out of it. One of the prophets who speaks of this era as the day of the Lord is the prophet Zephaniah. His message is one of mankind's grief and yet also of millennial glory. This little-known prophet's major theme is the day of the Lord, a period of time when God will arise and judge the nations and usher in a kingdom of righteousness under the rule and reign of King Jesus. As we zero in on Zephaniah, his person and his prophecies this morning, I want to give you a quick overview or outline of his message. In chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 through chapter 3 and verse 8, it is a message of judgment. It is a message of judgment first upon God's people, the nation of Israel, and then a message of judgment upon the godless pagans, the Gentile nations. But then at the latter part of Zephaniah's little book, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, we move from a message of judgment to a message of joy. 
And here we see blessings upon those Gentile nations that come to repentance and also upon the nation of Israel. Now as we approach the text this morning, Zephaniah chapter 1, the first thing we notice is the penman. Who was he? Verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Note first his handle, Zephaniah. I love Hebrew names because they are filled with meaning. The word means the Lord hides or the Lord protects in This may be referring to God's protection of the Jewish remnant during the grievous circumstances that they were experiencing in in Zephaniah's day. It may be speaking of God's protection of the Jewish remnant during the coming day of the Lord, or even of God's protection of the prophet Zephaniah during the reign of the wicked Manasseh. Note not only the handle that God gives him, but notice his heritage. He is the the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Little is known about the prophet Zephaniah apart from what is said here. And you'll note that his ancestry is traced back four generations. He was the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, king of Judah, implying that he was a man with a royal heritage and... uh, somewhat of a a social pedigree and prominence. He was also a relative of King Josiah, during whose reign he prophesied and ministered. And he's unique among the prophets because of his pedigree. But we move now from who he was to when he wrote. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. In his uh, wonderful book, When Prophets Speak of Judgment, David Levy, I just spent uh, 11 days with David in Israel, and uh, what a man of God he is, and what a wonderful Bible teacher. And in his book, uh, he helps us understand the times in which Zechariah, or excuse me, Zephaniah lived and prophesied and ministered. Here's what David writes, and I quote, The background for Zephaniah's prophecy was a time of social, moral, and religious decay. Hezekiah was succeeded by his son Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years. He was the most wicked king in Judah's history. He revived Baal worship, made his son pass through the fire, he observed times, he used enchantments, and he dealt with mediums and wizards. After being taken captive to Babylon and later released, he tried to reverse his wickedness, but without success. Ammon, Manasseh's son, took the throne after his father's death and continued the idolatry of his father. He was assassinated by his servants only two years into his reign. Ammon was succeeded by his son Josiah, who was only eight years old at the time. At the age of 16, Josiah began to seek the Lord. It was at that time, while repairing the temple, that Hilkiah, the high priest, found the book of the law and read it to to young Josiah. After reading the law, Josiah instituted many moral and religious reforms. Now, since uh, Zephaniah did not mention in his writing 
the reforms of Josiah, which took place in the 18th year of his reign, it seems apparent that he must have written before 622 B.C. But now we move on to not only when he wrote, but to perhaps even more importantly, what he wrote. And notice it goes on to tell us in verse 1, actually begins, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah. The messenger may be human, but the message is from God, indicating its source, its accuracy, and its authority. Dear ones, the church, much of the church, has lost its way today. And one of the reasons is that it has lost its confidence in the authority and the integrity of Scripture. Warren Wiersbe writes the following, You would expect the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah to be living comfortably in Jerusalem, enjoying a life of ease. Instead, you find him ministering as God's prophet, which was a dangerous calling. His contemporary Jeremiah was arrested and put in a filthy cistern for admonishing the leaders of Judah to surrender to the Babylonians. Wearsby continues, God had shown Zephaniah that judgment was coming upon Judah in the form of the Babylonian captivity, and the prophet had to share this message with the people. However, Babylon's invasion of Judah was but a feeble example of what would occur on the final day of the Lord, which would sweep the entire earth. Well, now we move from the penmen to the prophecies. And notice first their scope in verses 2 and 3. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume. The word consume rendered sweep away in some translations means to to gather and take away, to, to remove, to completely destroy. This coming judgment would be so severe that it would extend to life on land, men and animals. It would extend to life in the air, the birds, to life in the sea, the fish. And it's interesting to note that this is given in reverse order from creation. We move from the fish, the birds, the livestock, animals, and to man in creation. It'll be a reversal of creation. The Babylonian sacking of Jerusalem is the near fulfillment of this prophecy, but its far fulfillment, its complete fulfillment, awaits the coming day of the Lord. And now we move from the scope to the specifics. Where? Verse 4. God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The prophet begins by giving the general scope of this impending judgment, and now he turns to specifics. And he zeroes in on not the Gentile nations, not the godless nations, but he begins with Judah and with Jerusalem. What in particular does God deal with? Well, notice, first of all, apostasy. In verse 4, after identifying those that he's going to judge, he begins to name their sin. 
And he mentions in verse 4, I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priest with the pagan priest. Apostasy. First, there was Baal worship, which involved the immoral sexual practices of a fertility cult and temple prostitutes. Second, it involved two different groups of priests. One group was made up of pagan non-Levitical political appointees, and the other group was made up of Levitical priests who had defected from the worship of the one true God, and they turned to idolatry. Both groups were apostate, and both groups would be severely judged. And then there was astrology. Notice verse 5. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. As if apostasy among the people of God was not bad enough, they added astrology to their list of sins. They would go up on the rooftops of their homes and they would burn incense to the sun, to the moon, and to the stars. Those who worship the solar system fall prey to worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Astrology is an insult to God and deceives and deludes those who practice it. And yet there are millions today who can't begin their day, they can't get through a day without opening the newspaper or going to the internet and charting their life according to some astrological chart. I have four daughters. Our third born is the smartest in the family. I hate to admit it, but she's far smarter than her dad. And she won a scholarship to a Christian university. Her roommate at this Christian university was a very interesting person. They'd made an agreement to share the phone bill. The phone bill came and there was a whole log of calls to an astrologer, to a fortune teller. My daughter said, well, this cannot be. She called the phone company. Said, you've made a mistake. They said, no, young lady. We assure you that the calls to this fortune teller came from your room and from your phone. Well, Katie knew she didn't make them. So she confronted her Christian roommate who at first denied making the calls, but when confronted with the evidence, later admitted that she called the fortune teller on a regular basis to chart her life. How sad. And then he moves from apostasy and astrology to abominations. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. Apostasy is bad. Astrology makes it worse, but now add the abomination of the worship of Milcom, also known as Molech. He was the god of the neighboring Ammonites, and this cult involved child sacrifice, something that was forbidden by the law of Moses. And what made it even worse was that they professed to worship the Lord. Did you notice that in our text? They're swearing allegiance to the Lord, That's their profession, but here's their practice. 
They had given themselves over to the pagan worship of Molech. And then notice in verse 6, they'd abandoned God. It, you know, it, it just gets worse and worse. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Ultimately, instead of serving two masters, they tried to do that, but ultimately they turn away from God and willfully forsake him entirely for the pagan worship of their neighbors. Now we need to move to the whom in verses 7 through 9. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guest. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold who filled their master's houses with violence and deceit. The people of Israel were very familiar with uh, banquets and feasts. They were very much a part of the religious festivals and observances. But this sacrificial feast would be different. Notice that God is the host, the Babylonians are the guest, and the people of Judah were going to be the sacrifices. God was about to punish them because they had abandoned him. They'd abandoned his word, and they'd turned to pagan gods and were wearing pagan garments. And now we have wailing in verses 10 through 13. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore their good shall become booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall build their houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Wailing. God's punishment was going to hit them where it would hurt them the most, the pocketbook. I don't know about you, but it is my belief that America worships and has worshipped for a long time two masters. On the one hand, we say we are a Christian nation. On the other hand, we are totally devoted to the almighty dollar. And about three years ago, we got hit good, didn't we? And we're still reeling from it, and it's not over yet. God hit them where it would hurt them the most, the pocketbook. The fish gate was where the fishermen had their markets. The second quarter was where the wealthy lived in their luxurious homes, and Maktash was the commercial business market district of the city. 
It was there where the businessmen, where the bankers, where the wealthy, the connected, this is where they were located, and this is where the judgment would fall, and they would wail. And then in verses 14 through 18, we have a warning from God. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they will walk, they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. What a description we are given here. Don't miss these word pictures. Wrath trouble, distress, devastation, darkness, gloominess, clouds, thick darkness, trumpet, and alarm. God uses all of these descriptive words that will paint a complete picture of total devastation and judgment. And the wealth in which they had put their trust would not save them from this day of carnage and collapse. I love the commercial that uh, Jay Gordon Liddy does. You know, he says, uh, buy your gold where I buy mine. I've been wanting to do that, but uh, you've got to have cash first, right? But isn't it amazing that uh, many people today, well, you know, uh, we're in an economic uh, free fall, but if we buy silver and gold, then we'll be safe. My friend, we're not to put our trust in the securities of men, but in the providence, the goodness, and the kindness of God. There was a day in which mankind, unlike some of the leaders in today's emerging church, took God's warnings of judgment upon mankind very seriously. In fact, did you know that in the early church they actually sang hymns about God's judgment? We don't sing about judgment today. We don't preach about judgment today. There's a well-known, often used medieval Latin hymn that was based on Zephaniah 1.15. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress. And the first two verses of this ancient hymn read as follows. Day of wrath. O day of mourning, see fulfilled the prophet's warning. Heaven and earth in ashes burning. Oh, what fear man's bosom rendeth when from heaven the judge descendeth on whose sentence all dependeth. If one of today's worship leaders stood and announced they were going to sing a chorus or a hymn like that, they would quickly lose their position. I want to close with a quote from one of my favorite Bible teachers, Warren Wiersbe. The day of the Lord is an important concept that we must take seriously because it tells us where things are going and how they're going to end. 
During the day of the Lord, God will send tribulation to the world. He will judge the nations. He will save his people Israel and then establish his righteous kingdom. God warns that judgment is coming and it's foolish for anybody to be unprepared. The big question is, where will you hide on that great day? And please look at Zephaniah 2 and verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. I am so happy to tell you today that the Apostle Paul writes by the very authority of God that we who are believers in Jesus Christ have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation at the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. And Lord, what we have read today, what we have studied today is a, is a bitter pill. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ took that pill upon himself. He took the judgment that I deserved and bore it in his own body on the tree, paying for my sin and granting me the gift of eternal life. And Lord, that's available to all who will call upon you. Indeed, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord from the heart with sincerity shall be saved. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.